Hello, and welcome to I Want What She Has, a show that amplifies women's voices and their stories. I'm your host, Teresa Widman, and on today's show, I am supremely honored to have as my guest, Rachel Bernstein, a licensed marriage and family therapist. Rachel has been working with victims of cults and emotional abusers for over 27 years. She believes that given the right set of circumstances, it's all too easy for anyone to fall prey to sociopaths and manipulators. She is the host of Indoctrination, a weekly podcast covering cults, manipulators, and how to protect yourself from systems of control. She wanted to start a show that gives survivors a chance to tell their stories and for experts to teach us what they know. Her goal for indoctrination is to empower listeners to protect themselves and those they love from predators, toxic personalities, and destructive organizations. Now, I found Rachel through her podcast, Indoctrination. I myself have been a little preoccupied with cults this year, and if there's time at the end of the show, I'll go into some details about that. But what I can say is I have listened to various shows that discuss cults and mind control. I've watched movies, documentaries, television shows, really in an effort to understand both how somebody could fall prey to the mind control of others, but also to understand what to do when somebody you care about is under that influence. Rachel's show has been one of the best resources that I have found on this subject matter. And so when I reached out to her and she agreed to be a guest on my show, I was truly overjoyed. I will link to different shows and talk about some of my favorite at the end of the show today. But for now, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Rachel Bernstein. Well, I am so grateful, Rachel, to you for the work that you do and Mm. also for making time to come on to my radio show and podcast. I'd love for you to just start out explaining a little bit about your work in general, what it is that you do. Mm -hmm. Sure. And thank you. Thank you for asking me to be on. I I think it's, it's a great show. I also like the name of it. Um, (laughs) And um, so I, I do general counseling. I mean, I'm, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also an educator. uh, And I'm known in the field as a cult specialist. And so what that means is that I work with people who have left um, these systems of control, as I call them. So Uh, because I think once we get into, well, were you in a cult and is it a cult? Is it not a cult? You know, that becomes sort of its own discussion and can be a little distracting. So just system of control, because that also encompasses having been raised in a family that didn't let you be you, uh, uh, or was very punitive for you doing your own thing or having been in a relationship with someone who took over your life and yourself. Uh, so uh, I say about 80% of my practice are cult related cases with people who have left people who have left, who were born and raised in cults, which 
sets up a whole other list of issues and things to have to address when they leave and feel like they just landed on earth and don't know how to live among us uh, or if they want to live among us. Um, and people who got involved later on and are dealing with the after effects of it. And then I also work with families and friends of those who are, you know, that they're concerned something's wrong. Their loved one is involved in something that they think is really destructive for them and they don't know how to approach it. And we go over some ideas and every once in a while, every couple times a year, I'd say I get involved in interventions to help people break free. They're all non-forcible, just to be very clear. It's a lot of talking and sharing information and um, hoping to plant some seeds that help people, you know, find a path back to freedom. Yeah, this year I was, I guess, probably deepest in my, what I would call a, like an obsession with cults and, mm -hmm. um, and I, I've just consumed so much. I don't know, you know, there's that kind of idea that once you're, once you see something, you can't not see it. And so I felt like I was seeing cults everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it really is interesting to think about that intervention. You know, I feel like that's, that's something that, um, I'm very curious about, mm -hmm. um, you know, what I watched the Nexium documentary on Showtime and just the process by which uh, one mother, I don't remember her name, but whose daughter was in the group and just, mm -hmm. you know, how hard it was to, to maintain communication. So hopefully we'll have time to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. When I am uh, working with the families and friends of loved ones and doing interventions, um, as we'll, we'll talk about, there's a way to interact with the loved one that is um, counterintuitive. So that's why it's good to get some guidance about that because all of the natural ways that family and friends usually respond, um, unfortunately have them kind of winding up falling into a trap and that's been set by the cult. Um, so again, we'll, we'll talk about that more. And how is it that you ended up focusing really on this work? Is there any, was there any clear path as to how you got into this as like a specialty in a sense? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, um, there are a couple of different things that led up to it. So the first um, that was the catalyst was that I had a family member who had gotten involved in a cult in Scientology, actually. Uh, and it became dinner table conversation. How does this happen? How does someone get into someone's head? How do they create such personality changes in, in such a uh, swift and short time? How do they get someone to be devoted to and uh, not want to be involved in anything else and not want to see anyone else? And this is their new family and friends, um, <clears throat> again, with sort of lightning speed. Um, and knowing also at the time, this was in the 80s, that there weren't really a lot of resources. There was an organization at the time uh, that's since changed over time, and it's had to go its own way because it became eventually something called the Cult Awareness Network, 
which was then um, the the name was bought by Scientology. So now when you call the Cult Awareness Network, you're speaking to a Scientologist. Wow, so that's not that's not perfect. So um, so there is this organization that eventually became the International Cultic Studies Association, which now is still in existence, and I'm on the advisory board, and it's a great organization for people to know about also because there are conferences and lots of information and resources given and referrals. But because we couldn't find books and there were very few people to talk to and there weren't really therapists to go to who could guide us, we were kind of on our own. And that started me thinking about potentially being a resource one day. Then. Uh, I don't know how long you want this answer to be. There are kind of four things. That was the first thing. Then I went to college. I had already learned through a little bit of the studying that we had done that a lot of cults will do their recruiting on college campuses. Um, Not all, but a lot. But they don't use their regular names. They'll use front names that sound legit for school settings. Uh, Like... Alpha Omega might sound like it's part of the Greek system, but it's a front for a Bible-based cult. You'd never know. So I started learning those names. And then suddenly uh, another one also called Campus Advance, where as soon as people get involved, um, they usually drop out of school. So talk about that being an ironic name. Um, And there I was in Boston going to college and I went into the student union to see what they were offering in clubs and classes and groups. And there I saw three or four of the tables were groups that I remember hearing about. They were fronts for cults and the school was giving them space and classrooms to meet with people. They had no idea. They had no idea. Well, until I told them, <laughs> then, they, then they had an idea. Um, But I thought that's fascinating that you can send your child off to college only to have them stolen away by a group on their campus. Um, Then I went to graduate school and started studying to become a therapist. And when we were asked in a particular class what we would offer clients as an adjunct to just talking therapy and what groups we know of that would be good. A lot of people mentioned groups that I knew to be problematic, where you got involved in that became your whole life and they took all your funds and became your new family, all of the same sorts of things. And I thought, wow, if you can actually be out there going to seek therapy and get into a cult through your therapist, then I I definitely need to be doing this uh, and being a resource. And then the fourth part is... I started working at a place in Los Angeles called, it was called the cult clinic. It was part of Jewish family service, the counseling center. And it has since closed uh, or it closed. Well, uh, actually while I was there through Scientology pressure, they were picketing and threatening to sue. And they've closed a lot of different centers for people, which people don't know about. Um, But I had someone come to see me who had been on the RPF, which is, um, I know I'm mentioning Scientology a lot, but my office was very close to a Scientology building. Uh, the RPF is the Rehabilitation Project Force. It's sort of like their gulag. And she had climbed out a window and, to come see me and was terrified. And uh, then we just talked. And um, 
Then she went back. Someone saw her climbing back in the window and they grilled her until she shared where she had gone and who she had talked to. And I was, I think, 24 at the time. I mean, I, my license, the ink was still drying on my license, I say. And uh, then I had a client sent to me uh, about a week later who was just posing as a client. And then I got a full transcript of that session sent to me with a handwritten note at the top that said, just to let you know, we're watching and listening. So, and then I left my office that, that day, scared, and I saw two men I didn't recognize who looked pretty thuggy. <laughs> they were both, turns out, discredited LAPD officers who had been kicked off the force for a lot of valid reasons and were hired by Scientology to be their PIs. And they were leaning on my car and were just trying to intimidate me. I had to get the guard from the building that I worked in to help me get into my car. They followed me home. I stayed home for a while. I was really scared. And then my father, who had passed away just two years before this, um, I just, I sort of heard his words because he was a community activist. Uh, and his words were, um, you can't let the bullies win. And I thought, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm back on the job, uh, which I think was the opposite uh, that Scientology wanted. Um, so they, they have since harassed me throughout the 30 years that I've been doing this and they're harassing me now too. So I'm, you know, I deal with it pretty continuously, but people who have left Scientology or who are former high level members, they deal with it even much worse than I do. So, you know, I, I can handle. Well, I mean, what, what a beautiful story. You know, I think it's, whatever your beliefs are, you know, clearly there was a path that was kind of being paved for you and, and you do it well. I mean, I will say I've listened to some other podcasts on the subject matter, and I really like the way that you handle the conversations. They're compassionate, you know, they're not accusatory to be, to be mean. They're, they're just pointing out the issues associated with high control groups and, and the, then the damage that is done to folks as seen through the eyes of a therapist, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just, I really love the style um, and the way that, that your conversations unfold, but it's interesting. I, as I mentioned, my obsession with cults and I had watched the documentary on Scientology and I, you know, I'm watching this and I'm listening to your podcast and I'm thinking, isn't this woman afraid? I mean, because the stories of what Scientology has done to affect people's lives who are just trying to help those people get out of it or speak their truth. I mean, they have so much power. You know, I don't want to focus the whole show on Scientology because there's so much more to what you do, but I just want to, you know... I guess say how grateful I am that you continue to do this work despite the pressure because it's, it is very scary what they do to people. Yeah. And, and I, they have unlimited resources. Right. And so a lot of times I get asked, how do they get away with it? 
And why do they have tax-exempt status if they're not a church, really? And uh, why does all that happen? And when you deal with a group <clears throat> that, you know, spends a lot of its resources on its um, army-sized group of mean attorneys, then you have a sense about how they get away with it because people don't want to take them on. And, um, and then... That is very unfortunate. And I think they also have a policy that, that they say they don't have. They're, uh, when I was talking recently on a, a friend of mine, a colleague who was a former Scientologist, um, he was talking about the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force, where he said the whole point of it is you learn to gaslight yourself, which was fascinating. And his name is Chris Shelton. And I hope people listen to him talk about the RPF and how you gaslight yourself. They will say, we don't do anything to bother people. We let, you know, people live their lives and do their thing. Um, they have something called a fair game policy that L. Ron Hubbard started, which is where it basically says you can ruin people if you think they are a threat to the church. Um, and by me offering services to people who are considering leaving and giving them information to help them make an educated decision, I'm a threat. Um, they say they don't have this policy, but they do. I mean, it's in writing. So uh, there you go. But I think <clears throat> it is hard at times, and they're a thorn in the side of a lot of people. But again, some people have it much worse. And what I go through <clears throat> with them continuously, <clears throat> pardon me, with them continuously, you know, trying to send complaints about me to my board um, that get thrown out because, uh, you know, like the latest one uh, was that somebody who I never met um, put in a complaint to the board about how what I did with her as, as her therapist. I've never met this person. Uh, but, you know, you have to go through them you know, interviewing you, you have to prove it takes a lot of time and it's a, it's a pain, but, um, I feel ultimately like it's a, it's worth it. It's kind of worth it to, to do the work and to be a resource, especially because there, I think there are not enough of us doing this work. And so I encourage anyone listening who's thinking about wanting to be a resource to learn how, because there's, more of a need out there than there are people to fill that need. Well, I wonder if we can just maybe dive in to some of the things that I was hoping you could talk about on, on the show today. And I feel like a good place to start would be to talk about really what constitutes a cult or, I mean, is it, is there a preference to call it like a control group or a high con controlled group? Have you found in your practice that people prefer one language, one, one um, description over the right. other? Well, you know, <clears throat> what I do tell people is if they're going to be talking to their loved ones, they don't use the C word <laughs> uh, because that gets you nowhere. And that just becomes a point of contention and everyone tries to define it differently. Um, and uh, so 
you can talk about it being a high demand group or a high control group when you're talking to people where you're trying to kind of open their eyes about what they're involved in without triggering too much defensiveness. Um, but I still do use the word because I think it's important for people to have exactly what you're talking about, to have a definition in the way that I and my colleagues define it, not the way it looks if you were to look it up online, um, which has a much more tepid mm, description, more like a sect. Because it's not enough, to, uh, in my book, to call something a cult just because it's different and just because it's not part of a mainstream group and just because it's it's its own sect. There are many other characteristics that are important. And can you share a few of them that are kind of feel like the, they're the bigger ones, the, you know? Right. So when you're, when you're dealing with a cult group, you're dealing with an organization that is typically, not always, but typically run by someone who's a narcissist. And so just as you need to interact with a narcissist in a way where they can't tolerate ever being disagreed with, and they can't tolerate ever being wrong. You have to have unquestioning devotion to the leader and to the teachings. Even if they change, even if they don't make sense, <clears throat> even if you see hypocrisies and things don't add up, you have to believe it all, you have to accept it all, and you also have to accept this idea that if you don't believe it all or accept it all, it's because there's something wrong with you. And you have to then try harder. You have to open your heart up more. You have to be willing to receive it. You, you have to take this class that we offer you for this many thousands of dollars to, to uh, open up the blockages that are keeping you from taking this in. <clears throat> um, so that's one thing. The second is, that a cult will very often set things up in people's minds in very black and white ways. So the world outside is usually looked down upon in a cult. There are a lot of kind of snarky critical terms that cults have for people outside who are not part of this sort of anointed um, spiritual community or who are just the, the sheep, you know, doing their thing following even though, you know, right. Uh, but also, you know, the irony, of course, just like in a relationship with a narcissist, where a narcissist will accuse you of being and doing the very things that they're being and doing, uh, same thing happens in a cult. Um, so they're saving you from your controlling parents. They're freeing you from the constraints of the world, right? Even though once you get involved in a cult, you've never been more imprisoned and less free than you been before. Um, the other part is that it needs to become your entire life. You can't just take classes. You need to devote yourself to it. And it's the way you need to start thinking and talking because they usually have their own lingo. It's the way you need to start believing. It becomes your family. Uh, and it is more important than anything else in your life. So if there's a meeting going on at the group and it happens to be the same day as a parent's funeral, you can't uh, 
you can't go to the parents' funeral because that will show that you don't have allegiance to the group or to the, the mission. So it, in a very purposeful way, we'll make people have to um, choose at those significant times to show their allegiance. Um, but the other part that I think is, is important is that when you have a cult system, you're talking about a system that has rampant deception. Um, so when you get involved in a cult, you have no idea what you're really getting involved in. And people will sometimes say to me, well, so what's the difference between that? And let's say, well, you're Jewish. What about if you wanted to be Orthodox, right? I mean, Orthodoxy is also where you can't question the teachings and, you know, you can't question the leader and whatever else, and it becomes your life. And I say, which is true, that if I wanted, let's say, to become the Orthodox version of my religion, I would be told ahead of time what the expectation is how I'm allowed to dress and what I'm allowed to eat and, and what my role is within the community, I would be able to make an educated decision. Um, in a cult, you never are given all the information. You never know what the true intention is of the leader and what their intention is for you. You are kept from getting information. You're told you can't access information online. Something bad will happen to you. Scientology tells you you're going to get cancer if you look up, you know, information about them. Um, you can't talk to people who have left uh, because their energy will bring you to whatever the threat is. Okay. Uh, so from the start, you only have the information you're given. And then you never know what you're in. And it starts to unfold after a while. And the leader starts to reveal him or herself and the things that are not so great about them. But by then, you're already in that mindset of thinking that if you're thinking negative thoughts, it means there's something wrong with you and you need to try harder and work harder to clear your mind of that. Then, again, it's a way that they get you to keep the blinders on. Um, and then one other thing, which is there's no governing body. The cults, because they operate independently, there's no one to complain to. Um, there's no one watching. There's no one keeping track of what the leader is doing. The leader is the head of everything. And so they can get away with anything uh, and often do. Okay, Rachel, so you just gave some very detailed, scary realities for cults and control groups. And one of the things that came to mind as you were talking about it is, you know, this idea that, um, you know, this picture that you're painting that you're the person is not I guess I could say, even in my own experience, you don't walk in understanding the dynamic of everything. Mm -hmm. There's a process of indoctrination, um, and and it and it feel. I don't know if it's always calculated or if groups just sort of understand the ways that you you keep people within your fold, whether it be for financial benefit or ego or you know whatever it might be, but 
So the ways in which somebody begins to become indoctrinated, you know, are there are there characteristics of a person who should be perhaps you know, more aware of the things that they're seeing in the groups that they're involved in to avoid indoctrination? You know, is there is there a clear process that somebody can be looking out for, especially if you exhibit certain characteristics? And and maybe where I'm going is that I've I feel as though in my experience, both in my yoga group, both as a person who was trained in it, but also as a teacher, there's often people who are coming in who are suffering for some some reason. It could be long-standing trauma that they've gone through. It could be a recent heartbreak. It could be something like that. And it seems to me that they're then ripe for something to, to heal them. And so I'm just imagining, you know, like that's something to be watching out for, the who you go to when you're feeling in need. Um, Certainly that's not the only type of person that can get kind of wrapped up in it. But so maybe talk a little bit about the indoctrination process and the things to look out for, especially Mm -hmm. if you are, you know, sensitive for some reason, or if there's characteristics about yourself that, Mm -hmm. that might help your, you become indoctrinated. Right. So I think, you know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of questions I get asked about what kind of person gets involved in a cult or what kind of person joins a cult. And I always want to say nobody joins a cult because they they didn't know it was a cult. It's not like they woke up on Tuesday and said, "Mm, I'm bored. Let me see. Mm, What do I want to do today? (laughs) Uh, And so, uh, so I think that then what happens is you have someone who is looking for something spiritual or they're looking for connection. They are feeling um, because of a loss in their family or a loss of a relationship or they're away from their community for the first time. They're looking for a way to kind of supply them with a sense of community. A lot of people involved who got involved in cults uh, will say that sometimes the philosophy, the theology didn't matter as much as these friendships and having a sense that the people there really understood them. The, the crime of it in, in terms of community is that what you don't realize going into it is that, that the nature of the cult is going to make sure that these are the most conditional friendships you've ever had. Cause as soon as you leave, they're supposed to leave you. And uh, as soon as you question it, they're supposed to look down on you. So Uh, There are people who are also wanting to find a different path. They uh, have found that they haven't had the kind of success that they'd like to have, and they want to see what gets in their way. There are a lot of sort of self-help cults that help people, or at least say that they're going to help people um, get over the sort of victim mentality and stepping on their own toes, et cetera. Um, So, Uh, People also sometimes want to feel that they're doing something that is greater than themselves. And so there are some groups that will say, we can provide you with this ability to kind of save the world and save the planet and do something on a a large spiritual uh, or ethical scale. Um, But yes, if you know about yourself that you get caught up in moments of fervor 
you can get very entangled very quickly and think something is the best thing ever very quickly, more so than the people around you. You then want to take a step back and learn about cults because you want to be a smart consumer knowing that you have this propensity. Uh, and you also don't want to give over your trust and your devotion to something and someone who doesn't deserve it. Um, there are also people who, because of their feelings of self-worth or childhood experiences, they, they feel deserving of mistreatment. Um, and so they don't have that sense that someone is doing something wrong to them as quickly as they should or quickly as healthy for them to have it. And they also don't feel it's right to set boundaries and to say no. And within cultic systems, you can start to notice things that are bothering you or people will start to dictate different parts of your life. And you think it's a little too intrusive, but you don't feel comfortable saying, you know, can you back, can you back off? And so you learn to just sort of ignore it and go along with it, which is, you know, ultimately what happens when a lot of people get involved. Um, but I think it's also important to know that what cults do is basically they use the techniques of influence, whether it is, as you say, something that's been crafted or it just happens because some personalities will just run groups a certain way because of their own personality disorder. But if you study a business model of influence, you'll see all the techniques um, that are used in multi-level marketing uh, and also in some, you know, religious cults, basically the same ideas, just with different content and sometimes with God or something spiritual in the mix. But it's the same ideas of scarcity. Like you can only buy this here and, you know, you also this idea of reciprocity we're going to give you an opportunity or we're going to give you eternal life or something now what are you going to give us uh how much devotion are you going to give us um similar to if someone buys you a present then you feel compelled to then get them something in return just human nature so i think it's good for people to realize how they can be how their the good sides of them can be preyed on and played on and, and to learn about what to watch out for. But also for some people to know that if it, if it feels too good to be true too quickly, then it is. And it's an unfortunate message. And I don't mean to be a downer. It's just for safety. Um, that things shouldn't feel so magical right away uh, with a person or with an organization. And if they do, it's because they've crafted it to be that way, to suck you in. There are so many um, thoughts that I'm having. And maybe we'll just kind of flow with the, the word magical. And something that's just, it's kind of come up for me. You know, I, I taught Kundalini yoga, and it is by design, very challenging and so people people often will have profound experiences because they're meditating you know with their hands above their head for 60 minutes in breathing a certain way and chanting i mean it's it's a 
a tremendous physical feat sometimes what people are going through. Mm -hmm. And so they have these very powerful experiences. And I myself have, because I saw sort of the ills of the, of the teachings that I was brought into, I have shied away from creating those experiences for people. Mm -hmm. And, but I, but, you know, it's kind of like this question is, are all of those experiences bad? Do those experiences do something to enhance or heal the person? Is it just the context of if you're doing it within a certain group that then is influencing you, it's bad? I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I do. So I'm writing down some words here as we're Talking. We're both doing the same, doing our notes to, to come back to different points, uh, which is great. I think, yes, there is this idea that is sort of no pain, no gain idea. Uh, um, if something is more challenging, then it's more transformative. Um, that's not necessarily the case. And it can happen because if people push themselves, you know, they're going to reach the peak of that mountain. They've tried and they haven't done it. And then they finally do it. You can have a great sense of accomplishment and confidence and, and exhaust yourself and push through the exhaustion uh, and see what you're able to do. And that is a fantastic moment. What you want to be mindful of are a couple of things. One is that within a group setting, sometimes people are pushed to do things that are beyond their comfort zone, um, but the intention is not pure. And for, for a lot of things that we'll talk about, the delineation between healthy and unhealthy is the intention. And so if the person who let's say is running that class, that yoga class, who wants to just see if people will do things just because they tell them to. And that's their ego aggrandizement in the moment. Not, it's not for you, it's for me. Uh, then you'll get a sense that it's not healthy there because people will be pushed beyond, again, what they might have the capacity to do. And then they'll wind up having this sort of mm, social construct around it where the ones who are able to do it are the ones who are more liked. And the ones who are able to do it are the ones who will get smiles from the teacher. Um, and they'll be higher up in the community and they'll be elevated. And so there is this being left out and the worry about being left out and looked down upon that pushes people. And it should be in those moments where you're pushing yourself, like climbing to that mountain, that should be a conversation you're having with yourself. Not that you're trying to please a person and getting them to be proud of you um, or just trying to keep yourself from being shamed in some way mm, by not being invited to a certain workshop on purpose because you weren't showing, you know, that you weren't trying hard enough. Um, I think the, the other part is that in order for something to be healthy, it has to be personalized. And so if it is that everyone needs to do the same thing, there are people who can't, there are people who might not want to, 
there are people who will say that actually is going to interfere with me having a, a transformational moment. And I know that. And so if instead, like what happens in cults, everyone has to do the same thing, because again, whatever the leader says is the right way to do it, then you're going to have a lot of people failing or feeling like they failed, feeling like they weren't trying hard enough. Um, and it should be instead that it's all fine. Like being a yoga instructor, if you can't move your leg there, then don't, don't do it. If it hurts, if you have a back, just don't and don't worry. And there's no shame and you haven't done anything wrong and you're not weak and you can still have your transformative moments, but let's find other ways. Um, cults don't make it personal in that way. You're not given permission to be you and do what you know is right for you. You mentioned the word fervor, and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit, you know, what I was describing of that kind of, you know, amazing high experience that you have during a yoga class or, or whatever it might be. I mean, I've seen a lot of documentaries um, of cults where there is this either kind of like extreme, I would call it almost torture or extreme high and I don't know if that's what's considered like an awe response to something, but are, can you talk a little bit about how the, I, the concepts of awe and fervor play a role in how you view the group and how it's part of the indoctrination? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, there's a colleague of mine, Dr. Yuval Laor, L-A-O-R, um, who has studied a lot about awe and fervor. He's, he was on my podcast a few times and he's been on many other podcasts too. And he talks about the impact it has on the brain and, and also how it kind of tricks the brain at times to feel like what you are experiencing is something meaningful and transcendent um, when it could just be that you are kind of mm, pushed to have your heart race or um, to be excited to the degree that everyone else seems to be excited because you don't want to be the only one in the room who doesn't seem excited because <laughs> people will notice that. Um, and so it's similar to if let's say when people were going to concerts, live concerts, and hopefully again soon, uh, you have the, the band that comes on first that people are not so excited about, unfortunately, I always feel bad for those bands. And then, then there's a delay. And then when you're waiting too long for the band that you went to hear to come out, there's chanting that starts and cheering and people start singing their songs and calling out their names. And you see this social contagion. And then people, by the time the band comes out, people are crying and they can barely contain their excitement because it was all cultivated. Um, and so when that's happening, when you need to do this sort of very fast dancing for hours and hours and hours that happens in some groups, or you need to um, spend a whole day listening to the leader just going on and on and on for eight hours or whatever it is. And you have to stay focused and you can feel that you're dissociating, but still having again, what feels like this spiritual experience. Um, I think what you 
what you want to do is look at, is this something that I am doing for myself in a personal way? Or is this something that I'm needing to do? Like, can I, am I allowed to stop dancing? Or do I need to actually dance for another hour in a frenetic pace? Uh, and if you're already feeling fine, or if you're already feeling exhausted, you don't get to stop until someone else tells you to stop. That's, again, one of the distinctions. And that means that they know, in terms of brain chemistry, at what point someone is going to kind of go over into that space of being overwhelmed and also dissociative. And they're going to say, or they're going to tell people that that's because they reached this higher spiritual place and people will feel like a, a sense of awe. Um, but it really is that they found a way to release a certain amount of chemicals in your brain that makes you feel like you had this incredible experience. Um, so I think it's used very often. And, um, and that's why sometimes in some cults that are communal, they'll wake people up in the middle of the night because there's something of utmost importance that they need to do and they get people charged and running. And there's some groups also where you actually have to run. You can't walk from place to place. You have to run. That's also to keep your heart racing and to make you feel like what you're doing is, is of the utmost importance um, and exciting. And so, uh, yeah, it, it plays a big role. It does. One of the the, I guess, questions that has come up for me in my own processing is, you know, oftentimes when, when we have, and I'll say we, when I've had these kind of awe experiences, I feel like something has happened to me. And as you described, there, there can be something, you can feel a sense of, sense of accomplishment, you can feel, mm -hmm. you know, you've pushed through doubts or fear or whatever. But I, I felt like what was actually lacking was a deeper appreciation about why those doubts and fears were there in the first place. And that kind of like once that adrenaline, you know, cocktail, once the drug rush is gone, mm -hmm. then you're still you're still kind of working with the trauma that might be held, still continue to be held in the body. And I, and it makes me think about one of your interviews you did with a, um, a woman who, you know, had to, I think they would take mayonnaise baths for rebirthing purposes. And, and I, I think she had said how it really didn't have any effect on her that she, that she thought of. And, and so in your practice as a therapist, like, do you, or I don't know if you can answer this, but do you think that people are still coming back to you with like the inherent kind of wounds and traumas or, or, you know, do you think some of these practices are actually healing them? And maybe that's way too difficult of a question to answer. Um, any thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there isn't one answer to it because that, you know, for some people, what is confusing for them and just some of the people I've already spoken to today where, where they will say, I actually did get something from my experience. I, I did feel better. I felt calmer. I, I felt a connection. I felt that someone could really help me and I did get some answers. Um, but what I also got 
were these other things that I need some help with now because they're still in my head and I can't get, can't get them out of my head. Uh, or I don't need them anymore, but they're not done with me. You know, they keep trying to pull me back in. Um, uh, or some of the things that I learned were actually not helpful. And so how do I discern and, and kind of mm, get those ideas out while holding sort of holding on to the good and leaving the rest. Uh, and so I tell people they don't have to get rid of it all. If there is something that was helpful, if there's a practice they learned, if there's something that they showed themselves that they were capable of doing, yeah, take that with you. Um, but don't believe that you were only able to get there because of the leader or because of the group. You got yourself there. And you want to know that and really know that and take that into the world with you. And uh, what's also true is that more often than not, when people leave, when they have gotten involved in something in order to address hurt feelings or scared feelings or trauma, Mm, by and large, they're then dealing with people who don't know how to address emotions. They're not professionals and they don't actually know how to help you with that. They'll tell you they can, but what they've done typically is they've helped you learn how to submerge them rather than heal them and address them. Because you've been so busy doing other things, or so busy meditating or chanting or getting busy doing the work for the group, that a lot of times when people leave, the, the things that they were dealing with before do come flooding back. They are really upset by that because they just spent a lot of time and devotion and made a lot of sacrifices for something that didn't end up healing them and something that promised that it would, but didn't come through with their promise. That is after they stopped blaming themselves for it not working because that takes a while to undo. But then you have the added issues of then not knowing if they can trust themselves, not knowing whom to trust, feeling angry, feeling a sense of loss, of what this was supposed to be and loss of the community. So you not only have your original issues, but you have 10 others that you're dealing with because of your experience. All right, Rachel. So Obviously, in, you know, whatever amount of time we have left, we're not going to be able to cover all of the ways that a person can help extract themselves from a cult or that a family can understand how to be supportive um, or to do an intervention. But I'd like to just talk a little bit about that aspect of things, about, you know, what somebody can do. You know, I, I, one of the things you were talking about earlier, I just, it made me think about the, the vision of the person, you know, who is, for whatever reason, you know, was tender, was, you know, had gone through a hardship and joined this group. And now this group has become their support structure, which is so much, I think, of the challenge of extracting yourself from a cult. 
And I mean, and I see this in many different places, right? Like I feel like some corporations, it's, it's, it feels that way where mm -hmm. the job may not be fulfilling, but you don't want to leave your colleagues or a social circle that's doing things that you don't necessarily, you know, aren't in your best interest, but you're afraid to say no to them. There are so many ways <laughs> that this plays out in the world. Um, so I understand the reality of that pull and I, I don't know what, what there is, what kind of information you can give to folks who are struggling with that right now. Right. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because, because some of the work I do is general counseling. You know, I've, I've actually talked to a number of people who, um, have stayed in marriages for a long time past the point of kind of already not loving their spouse anymore because they had grown, grown so close to their in-laws and they didn't want to say goodbye to them and they didn't want to be seen as a bad person in their eyes. There's so many reasons that we continue doing what we're doing even after we think it might not be a good idea. Um, so a lot of people will find that there is something that they stay for whether it is that they get something from it or just because they've been made too fearful to leave that, you know, as soon as you leave, you're abandoning the mission and, uh, or that, um, you're abandoning your friends or you've seen what happens to people who leave that people will cut off from them or they're talked about in a horrible way in the group. And you don't want to be defamed in that way and be thought of in a bad light. So there, yeah, there are many, People who are, who stay, they're like uh, physically in, but emotionally out. And actually, I'd say a good percentage of people in cults are physically in and emotionally out for years before they leave. So how does it finally break for them? I mean, is it through uh, uh, friends or family that that can help them out? How does that usually happen for people that they're able to get the strength to step away? Right. Um, there are people who will mm, want to reconnect with people outside who they had disconnected from and sometimes had been very mean to. Sometimes cults will really encourage people to be very cruel to their family and friends and falsely accuse them of things and, you know, be very mean. So sometimes they worry that, uh, that they've burned their bridges and there's nowhere for them to go back to. And that's why I encourage family and friends that if they're getting mistreated by a person who's in a cult, they don't have to absorb it and take it, but they still want to give these forever messages. Like, even though you've said these things to us and it really, really bothered us, um, we're still your family. You still always have a home to come back to. You still have a safe place to land. It's a very important message because I, I can't tell you how many people I know who have stayed in bad situations because they really thought that their family would not accept them back. Um, and so I think for a family and, and friends to be very unconditionally accepting, if someone wants to come back, you know, people shouldn't say, huh, not so fast. You need to take responsibility for what you did and leave, you know, and you hurt your brother and sister by leaving the house. Don't have any of those conversations. <laughs> Just say, great, you know, but what, when do you want to come home? Or if you're not ready, just, if you're just trying to find out if 
we're here for you, we're here for you. And just solidify that connection in their mind. Then I think it's important for people to feel um, taken care of. And I know that a lot of people say, you know, to me, oh, I, I really want to have just the exact right thing to say to someone who has left. So I make sure they don't uh, uh, go right back in. But sometimes for some people, um, it's that they're taken care of. And what I mean by that is usually within cultic systems, you're in service too. You're in service to the group. You have to sacrifice your own comfort for the group. And I know someone who I was doing an intervention for where I had planned all these really fantastic things to say, but it was because I had offered her tea that that was the thing that did it for her because she, for the last 20 years, had been the one to give to everyone else, but no one had ever offered anything back to her. And just that sense of being taken care of was that point of departure where she said, oh, I haven't experienced this for so long. I didn't even know that I hadn't experienced it until you said, would you like a cup of tea? And then I started bawling and I realized <laughs> that was that was my moment. Um, but I think for people also to know that um, when they come out, they're not going to be um, feeling ready necessarily. They're still going to have a lot of the control and manipulation and fears inside of them. And they're going to feel on the fence quite a bit. And what helps is for there to be a connection to other people who have left so that they can share those experiences and those feelings, those conflicted feelings, and they can see that life can be okay once you've left. The things that you were told, the bad things that are going to happen to you because you've left, well, those things haven't happened to these people. And so I will do as much as I can to connect people who are considering leaving or have left a group with others who have left that or similar groups. Um, that's why I run a former cult member support group now online for, for that reason, to help people connect and not feel kind of uh, terminally unique in their experiences. Um, but I think also doing cult education and um, teaching about narcissism helps quite a bit because when you help people understand why they were made to feel bad about questioning that it wasn't they were doing something wrong. It was just that it affected the fragile ego of the person in charge. And just helping them understand the system that they were in is, I think, helpful. Is there a way to have a healthy relationship with a narcissist? <laughs> uh, you know, what that means for you uh, if you are in a relationship with a narcissist and you want it to feel healthy um, is that you need to, I think, develop your own sense of self that you can hang on to, that you know, again, if you're choosing to stay or you feel like you don't have a choice that you need to be with this person who's a narcissist, you know, I think you can say, I'm not going to let this person's um, behavior towards me, uh, and words towards me and digs and, you know, all the things that are trying to make me feel small. I'm not going to absorb them. I'm going to find 
a way to deflect them out and see them as his or her issue. That's very hard though. It's very hard. Um, it takes a lot because you have to build up an armor uh, that the narcissist is very good at breaking down and you have to kind of keep rebuilding it. And, uh, and then it's good to get support, et cetera. But yeah, being in relationship with a narcissist is very hard because it's not the way you even define relationship. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if you even can have a relationship with a narcissist. You can take care of one. You can absorb their emotions. Um, you can devote yourself to one, but is that a relationship? That's a very good point. So, you know, as far as talking about what family can do, is there anything else that you feel is important to to share? I mean, you talked about maintaining connection and kind of keeping the door open um, just so that the person who is in the high control group feels as though they'll have a supportive place to land if and when they're mm -hmm. ready to to. To, to make that change, but are there other mm -hmm. things like to consider? And if a family is thinking that we need to do an intervention, you mentioned earlier how it needs to be a, um, what was the word you, it, um, it was intuitive, right? Yeah. 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 Right. So most, uh, family members, spouses, the kids of, people who have gotten involved in cults. I've had, those are interesting cases where the children come to me and say, our parents got involved in a cult. Uh, what do we do? Um, by the time they've come to me, they very often have done what they call blowing it. They've blown it. They have called the thing a cult. They have said, how can you not see this? Why are you being so gullible? Why are you going along with this? You know, um, why aren't you willing to look at any information about it? And, you know, why are you keeping your blinders on? And, um, uh, and, and I think, so they've done a lot of kind of criticizing the group and criticizing the person. Um, so what happens though, is that on the one hand, when you have someone who is wanting to feel that something is wonderful, and they're also wanting you to feel that they can make good decisions for themselves. Their defensiveness is going to keep them from hearing anything you have to say that is of any value for them to listen to, because they are going to dig their heels in and they're going to need to prove you wrong, no matter what comes out of your mouth. So you don't want to get into that, into that dance it doesn't get you anywhere. And so the other part is cults will set a trap. For loved ones. And the trap is anyone who is against you being involved with me or with us are people who don't love you, people who don't care about you. They don't care about your spiritual development. They don't care about anything. They're getting in your way of your success. And if they criticize it, if they question you, if they call it a cult, if what all the things that they're expecting people to do, and then the family says, you're involved in a cult. We think you need to stop going, whatever. And already the equation that in the person's mind is, oh, so now it's been proven. These people don't love me and they don't care about me. I can't trust them. They don't really want what's best for me. 
So you want to make sure that you don't fall into that trap. And instead, instead of coming to the conversation by telling somebody what to do and telling them how wrong they are also about their views and about the group, take a much more passive role, a listening role, where you say, well, teach us. Teach us about what you like about it. And tell us about what speaks to you and who you've met and what you like about them. And start the dialogue in a very safe way. And I think you can also say, as a loved one, we want to apologize for yelling at you or telling you you couldn't go back or calling it a cult. We could be wrong. But sometimes when people get angry and definitive and forceful in their message, it's because there's something happening that's making them feel scared. And so we might be frightened about something because we have information that you don't have, or it could be that we're frightened because we don't have enough information. So help us kind of fill in the blanks so we have more information. And we promise to have it conversations where we listen and we stay calm. Um, it's like, it, that's a place to start. And, and then you can start to test it and say, you know, great, I'm glad we could have this conversation and we would love to look at your, the materials or if there's a website. And then can we also show you some of the things that we've found? And then we can kind of compare and contrast some of the information we've been given. And it could be completely wrong and completely biased, but we'd like you to look at it. And in that way, you're planting seeds. You're doing cult education. You're teaching someone about the group. You're giving them permission to also tell you you're wrong, but they're still reading it and they're still looking at it. And you want the, that information to sink in so that when they go back potentially to that next meeting or that next weekend or workshop or whatever, they start to see those things with their own eyes. And so I, I think you want to start by breathing and receiving and, and not being too forceful and pushy and like you're, you're the expert in the situation, even if you are. Um, because it's really, again, going to push people farther in. Yeah, it makes sense. I can see how the impulse is quite the opposite, but, um, but I see the value absolutely in what you're describing. It was interesting, the interview you did of Merck Vicente from the Nexvium saga, mm -hmm. and he talked about how his wife at the time who had left just like slowly started to feed him articles and how there was like a process. It wasn't like the worst thing was that was sent first. It was sort of like the gentle information was sent first. And then it kind of built up along the way, which I thought was really pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a very smart way to do it. It's a very respectful way to do it. It's not saying I know what's best for you and what you need to do. It's saying, I respect you enough to provide you with information that I think would be helpful for you to look at so you can make a fully educated decision. And so it's hard to say no to that as if you offer it in that way.
Rachel, one of the concepts that I had heard on one of your episodes was the phrase betrayal blindness. And I, it really just struck me um, as a very powerful concept to understand. Um, and also, it's like, how do you help people own up to the fact that they might have made a bad decision by joining a group or or their judgment was in you know there's a judgment of their decision to be in the group um and in order to leave it's like they have to own up to their bad judgment of making the decision to enter it and um and i don't know if that's actually related to betrayal blindness but they feel similar to me so could you just talk a little bit about betrayal blindness i think the idea of betrayal blindness is something that um, we all have uh, the potential to have and in different contexts. So, um, you know, I think that's why um, kind of the healing and health industry and a lot of pseudoscience works as well as it does. There is a placebo effect because we want it to work and we want it to be the answer. Uh, and we want it to have been worth the money we spent on it or the time we spent on it. And so already we will kind of imagine that we're getting more benefit out of something than we are. And that delays this awareness that you've been lied to. And I think when you also have betrayal blindness and it moves away from just like the pills didn't work to this person who I was told to trust above all others was someone who betrayed my trust, someone who shared my secrets with other people, someone who crossed boundaries with me, um, but told me again, it was for my benefit or because I was being specially chosen or whatever other justification was I, I might not be ready to look at all of that because that will mean that's going to start a domino effect. And I don't know if I'm ready to say goodbye to all of this. And if I start to be really angry and clear about something that happened to me that was wrong, then I might have to leave all of this and leave the friends I know and the belief system that I like. And, and I might have to deal with going home and having people say, I told you so, which also I want to tell parents and loved ones never to say, but there is a fear about that of them having been right all along and needing to save face. Uh, so we want what feels really good to continue feeling really good. And we want it to work if we believe that it's going to work and we've devoted ourselves to it. Um, we also feel that we need to um, act with a certain amount of um, responsibility and keeping to our word and oftentimes within cultic systems, people have recruited other people in and sometimes they've recruited in family and friends because they told them this was the best thing ever. So hmm, 
how do they then really look at something? And for a lot of people I know, they have left, but the people they recruited in, they weren't able to get out and they feel terrible about that. So sometimes we, once we have said to someone else, this is great, or we've gotten someone else to buy that's the same bottle of pills or that belief system, um, we don't feel ready to look at the fact that, you know, it's not what it said it was going to be and it's not real and it's not right. Um, just because we think we need to hold ourselves to a certain level of integrity that we mean what we say, that also creates that kind of betrayal blindness. So it happens on many different levels. And also that you're delaying something that's tremendously uncomfortable and depressing. Uh, which people will do, you know, for a long time. So they don't have to feel those really uncomfortable feelings, especially if the reason they got involved was because they were feeling those kinds of feelings and it was overwhelming to them. It's so interesting that, I mean, the cult situation provides like a magnifying glass into some of our our biggest kind of, I don't know what the word is, but like traumas and in the way that we respond, um, you know, psychologically to things. Because so much of what you talk about can be applied to many different situations in, in the world. I mean, you don't have to be in a cult to not want to admit that you were wrong and keep doing something for years, even if it doesn't serve you. And, um, Mm-hmm. So it's just it's I'm just sort of um, thinking out loud and in the fascination that I have of how the brain works and how it's set up to try to protect ourselves, but it doesn't always do a good job of that. I wonder if we could switch gears for a second or maybe a few minutes, um, sort of along those lines of like. I've been slightly obsessed with yet another group this year who has made bigger headlines, QAnon. And I view them as really a cult, although it's not, you know, a communal cult. There's nobody pressuring you to stay in other than if you formed a friendship circle and, and by leaving that, you know, leaving those beliefs means that you have to leave your friendship circle, which is also very similar to what happens in politics right now, right? If if you are of one political party, it can be often very hard to have a relationship with somebody in another political party. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about um, how we can move forward in a better way. you know, with with um, seeing the way that we're influenced by these external like systems, um, and keep more independent thinking, keep more of our own independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I do think that during times of uh, struggle and worry and fear of the unknown, we gravitate towards something that feels at times. Um, very strong and sure. And we want to be a part of that community that also like with QAnon and other conspiratorial groups gives us this feeling that they're offering us the key to our safety. 
we're now going to be able to watch what's happening. We're going to know. We're going to know in a way other people don't know. And when you then feel like you have this ticket and you can see behind the curtain, then it's hard to want to give that up. And you also feel on such a high going back to this fervor. People in QAnon who I've talked to, are, uh, it's almost impossible to get through a conversation because they're, they're so ramped up um, and at times mean and really mean. Uh, anyway, but I think that there, there is something so intoxicating about it. And that also when you have that intoxication, it can breed dependency on it. And then you don't want it to be taken away from you. And you also don't question it just because what you're getting from it feels so good that you don't want someone to crash your spiritual or political party by saying, you know, have you checked out these facts? Um, because uh, that's just going to be no fun. And then also, if you give that up, then where's your safety net? Because you think this is your safety net. So there are a lot of reasons that people will want to join in. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, that's how we've kept ourselves safe, that we've become part of a pack. And so during times of crisis, people become much more kind of pack animals. <laughs> uh, and it's just, I think it's part of our wiring. So when, you, when you're saying it would be ideal for people to be independent thinkers, absolutely right. And it's hard. And one of the things that you need to do is to know also with however many billions of people are on the planet, you're not the only one who thinks that way. So you're actually not alone. Might be your whole family doesn't think that way or your friend group, you know, doesn't think that way. But there are countless other people who are feeling the same way you're feeling. It's just harder to find them because they might not be as vocal. Uh, so again, no one should ever feel like their thoughts are completely independent and isolationist in that way. Um, but yeah, you want to consider the source of the information. You want to verify the source. You want to verify the information. Within groups like this, they'll send you back into the group to verify the information, which is not at all objective. Um, and so... You know, you, you don't ask the used car salesman if this car is in good condition. You ask the previous owner, right? <laughs> so what, what you want to do is be okay with also not knowing that sometimes, sometimes we don't know and sometimes we can't get the answer right away. And it takes a certain amount of confidence and being able to breathe to sit in the not knowing and find your guides, find the mentors, find the teachers, find the truth tellers who you trust, who are trustworthy because they're out there. Uh, again, they're not the ones who are shouting from the mountaintops. They're often harder to find, which is unfortunate, but they're there. And I think then it'll be a much healthier place to live in because then you won't have these two warring factions that are against each other and that create their own distraction from really what's happening in the world, which is, I think, what, what's happened this year. Just lots of warring factions um, that have drained people of their energy 
and um, and again have used people up in this way um, to continue a fight as opposed to knowing it's okay to think other ways um, and that we all care about the same things, which is that we all live in a healthy and safe world, but it's okay to approach that in different ways. Thank you for that. And it's also, I guess, just good to be reminded to hear you say that it's sort of like it was the perfect storm this year Mm -hmm. with the the crisis, people Mm -hmm. feeling in crisis, people feeling unsafe, unsettled, unsure about the future, all of those things. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to move in a different direction next year. I would love that. That would be really, really nice. Really nice. Just to lower the temperature, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a whole separate conversation. The amount of anger that I have seen coming out of people this year, I've done some, you know, political calling and texting, and it's just, I've never been confronted with such anger. And as a person like yourself, a therapist who, you know, it like, that anger is there and and i i hope that we can find a way of helping heal some of that because it, i feel like this just kind of gave it the outlet like the, the you know the faucet opened up and now we're seeing all of this stuff but mm-hmm. right yeah and i think also for people to own their biases and that that's okay i have mm-hmm. mine <laughs> you know mm-hmm. i think people who have different political views are wrong I mean, that's just how, how we are, but yeah. I don't need to say that to you. And I can yeah. also see that some of the ideas you have do have merit, even if I don't agree with all of them. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I, are there things that we didn't get to cover that feel important um, to talk about? Um, I think the, the only thing, and going back to, um, having a relationship with a narcissist and being in a cult and one of the control mechanisms to be mindful of, and, and this happens, and I don't mean this in a stereotypic way, but this happens more often with women that this is tried on them than with men, even though it is successful with some men as well, that, Once the cult leader or the narcissistic partner notices that their threats and their intimidation is not really working so much anymore on you, they'll shift gears and then become the victim that you need to protect. They want you then to feel protective towards them, sorry for them. They'll usually then come up with a childhood story of trauma or loss or abandonment. And, um, I hear that almost all the time that I stayed with this person, you know, they would hit me and they locked me away at times and they kept me from my family and horrible stories. And I finally, I had had enough and I was thinking about leaving. And then they sat me down to tell me that their mother died when they were an infant and, or they had a PTSD from having fought in a war or they were just never understood or one person after another abandoned them or they were in multiple foster homes. And by and large, none of these things are true, but usually you're cut off from communication and internet access in some of these situations that you can't verify. And so then people stay 
out of a sense of protectiveness and, oh, if they've been abandoned by all these other people, I can't be someone who, who abandons them too. And so just know that if you are ready to go and they know you're ready to go and suddenly they start to tell you <clears throat> a sob story, it's predictable and it's just another way for them to get their way and to ignore it all. I think it's so helpful for me. It has been so helpful to understand the patterns, mm -hmm. you know, it just helped to make sense of things because oftentimes you feel like, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it over and over again. You feel like you're so confused, right? I mean, the gaslighting process is very disorienting and you feel like, I, I think I know this is wrong, but this situation is telling me that it's, that I shouldn't think that way. And, and to see the patterns, like you're saying, to educate yourself about the patterns, I mm -hmm. think it's just a phenomenal, um, a phenomenally healing um, way to start to understand these, these topics. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad it's helpful. wanted to make sure to impart that because it's a very common trajectory yeah. in these situations. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So you, you have, are your, you do, um, is it weekly or monthly? Yeah. So I have, uh, my weekly podcast. Um, every time I think that it's, or I say that it's weekly and people say, wow, I think I, I've been off more than I could chew, but still, uh, there, there's always, uh, you know, content people want to tell their stories and I would love for them to tell their stories. And for some people, they share what they've learned. Some people's part of their healing. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it's called indoctrination. And so it's about systems of control, whether it's political or it's social, or, uh, I had someone talking about their gang experience. Um, or having been raised um, in the Aryan Brotherhood um, and how we get influenced and what to watch out for when people are out there trying to kind of um, use us for their own gain and derail us and how we make sure to not let that happen. Um, so it's just about, you know, how to keep yourself as safe as possible um, so that people out there who are these sort of parasitic people can't use you in that way. And do you still do a support group for, for former cult members? Yeah. So I have a support group. It meets online now. It's every other Wednesday evening. Um, I will sometimes do groups that are for particular cults that where a whole group of people have left a particular cult and we'll do, you know, a couple hours of that kind of group. But the, the group that I do every other week is for a variety of different cultic groups represented and also some parents and other loved ones who want to speak with the former cult members to find out what helped them leave. Uh, and then I also meet with clients and see them in my practice now on Zoom or on the phone uh, and um, give workshops and talks through International Cultic Studies Association and other places. So yeah, it's, it's been a busy time. Yeah. And can people find out about your, all of this on your website? Yes, they can. And uh, if they want to support the podcast, I pay for it out of pocket as a public service. So people can always, if they want to help keep it going, they can go to Patreon to help make that happen. Uh, and yes, my website, rachelbernsteintherapy.com. 
and you can see some articles and you know links to the shows and um, some of my kind of philosophies about why this matters to me. Well, I am so grateful that you do this work, Rachel. Um, I it, it's been very helpful to me in my own journey. Um, and listening to the stories that are shared, I can see how helpful it is to the folks who are on your podcast. Um, and I so just big thanks and super big thanks for coming on to my show. Mm -hmm. It's been such an honor, and I will continue to follow along in all of your upcoming episodes. Oh, that's wonderful. Very nice to have met you and to learn about what you do. And I appreciate your very thoughtful, thought-provoking questions. I always love answering those because I really, um, I, I, I like being able to kind of collect the data for all these years and kind of offer it to people in the hope that it really helps them in very practical ways. So thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that if we had time, I would share a little bit about perhaps why it is that I became obsessed with cults this year. And I don't know if there's just one reason for it. I have been obsessed with the mind, or maybe obsession is a more of a negative term. I have been very curious about the mind for a very long time. I was probably curious about things like meditation and psychedelics when I was younger and certainly had some experiences that made me understand in a different way about the fact that our brains are going to reveal the world to us based upon certain factors that may not necessarily be accurate. And maybe that's a little too esoteric to, um, to make much sense. But, you know, there's this idea that, you know, we can see certain things because of the ways our, our eyes function. We can hear certain things because of the way our ears function. And this is not necessarily the full spectrum of sight and sound. So the idea that we can be certain and know everything is just, to me, it's completely untrue. So then it becomes, well, what is the information that we I am able to be aware of based upon the way that my brain and my body works. And over the years, you know, I've studied various types of meditation. Even when I was uh, working in software, you, you know, the company that I had worked for, we were building basically um, AI to be able to 
um, digest information that came in the form of words and interpret it as though a human was interpreting it. And so, you know, I kind of understood this idea of reverse engineering the human brain and putting it into a computer program made me realize how similar our brains are to a computer program. So what are the programs that we're putting in them? Anyways, that's a long-winded way of getting to the point that when I came to a point in my life where I was struggling to make some life changes and I I wasn't feeling um, I wasn't feeling my best for a couple of different reasons and I ended up coming across Kundalini yoga. And it was interesting because at the time I had been studying the unconscious mind and one of the things that Kundalini Yoga, or I should say at least my teacher, um, I, I, I'm going to use the words Kundalini Yoga that are not intended to be a broad oversweeping of anyone and anyone that's ever practiced it or taught it. My experience is simply my experience based upon who I learned it from and you know, similar to how the brain works. It's it's limited by what we know and what we experience. So my specific teacher had talked about how the unconscious mind is really this danger place. And what we need to do is we need to clear it. We need to wipe it away. And once we do that, we can basically be operating without any of these things, these thoughts that are that are in our unconscious mind, things that are related to, you know, ways that we may have been brought up, information that we may have been taught at any point in our life, but very much so when we are young and we don't have the ability to really discern for ourselves. We're like sponges. We're just absorbing all of this and it's basically programming ourselves you know, to, you know, things that we develop over time, like fears and doubts and shame and all of this stuff. So these thoughts sit in our unconscious, so, you know, sometimes they're in our conscious mind, we are aware of them, but oftentimes they're, they're underneath the surface. And so when I started practicing Kundalini yoga, it was this philosophy that I was taught, you know, basically, we are clearing the subconscious, we're clearing it out, so that you're not affected by all those things. And I felt tremendous relief from the practice. And I'm not going to go into all of my theories about why. I think that, you know, and I don't know all the reasons. So I guess that's just an easy way of, of getting out of that whole conversation. But I do know that there were parts of me that were activated through the practice that had been dormant for a while. And one of them was creating sound. I had pretty much all my life wanted to be a singer, um, even though I never let myself even imagine that as a possibility. And this, you know, practicing Kundalini Yoga, we chanted a lot and um, we made sound. And even if you're not into singing or making sound, there's a very cathartic experience that you have when you are moving energy that way, especially when you're doing it. I was actually taking voice lessons at the time, and you're taught to really bring the sound from deep within your belly. So I can tell very long winded stories. 
Um, there are many reasons why I felt better when I was practicing Kundalini yoga. You know, things were challenging and you, you did something that, you know, felt like you was impossible. You know, we did 60 to two and a half hour long meditations that were oftentimes involving very challenging physical positions, you know, holding our arms above our head. And when you get done with it, you feel amazing. So there were a lot of benefits to the practice. It helped me feel better about who I was. It helped me feel hopeful. I felt I was very, very creative at the time. And so it, it was very pleasant. Um, but the problem was that once I got a little bit deeper into it, you know, I signed up to take a, a teacher training course and I started to see a little bit more of this pressure to conform to the beliefs of the group uh, and I I resisted that I am for whatever reason you know I guess I could say at the time I thought you know do I resist authority is this um, a flaw with inside of me that I need to work on is my ego too big and do I need to bring it down a notch and just sort of surrender to the guru and to the teacher? And so I, I just observed myself through it. And I eventually um, started working on a project with somebody who I was very close to at the time, who was also one of my teachers, not the person who I trained with, but, but somebody who taught classes. And the project that we were working on uh, you know, it, it became very apparent that if I didn't believe the same things that this person believed, that this group in, in general believed, that I wasn't doing a good job, that I wasn't doing the right thing. And I wrote a blog post about it. Um, it is a 16 minute read blog post, which I thought, well, I could read the whole blog post on this radio show and save all of you the time of having to read it yourself. But for whatever reason, I am just going to leave it there. If you'd like to read the blog post, you can. But I, I share a little bit about my own journey of feeling stuck in this place of being afraid to leave, um, to make choices that were going to cause friction between me and this person who I cared a great deal about. She had been a very close friend of mine. And also, you know, being surrounded in this group where so many people seem to share the same beliefs. And, and so when you're confronted with that, and you're really kind of on the outside, and you're thinking, you know, I don't agree with this, you know, or I have a question about that, but you're not allowed to ask questions about it. I started to feel like either something was wrong with me, or maybe I just didn't belong. And so fast forward, I ended up essentially removing myself from the situation. And it was a very traumatic experience for me. Um, but, um, you know, I've just kind of worked on myself for the past few years. And then this year, earlier this year, some information was revealed about the founder of Kundalini Yoga, and just a whole host of stories just came out. People started sharing about all these different things that had happened to them, and more information about, you know, the practice itself. And it, it felt as though 
I could finally trust myself, which, you know, is still a bit of a shame that I had to have that final validation from an external source to really just be able to say, okay, yes, you know, what I was thinking and feeling was justified. And it's, you know, you never need that is I guess what I'm trying to say. You don't need that external validation. But it helped me and it helped me to process, uh, maybe maybe to feel more compassionate about my experience. And then that kind of revelation earlier this year, in conjunction with what I started to see around me, mostly through the group known as QAnon, which, you know, it's... That's a whole big separate conversation, but I just started to see people believing things that seemed incredible to me, impossible, and I became so curious as to what makes somebody believe certain things. You know, it was very similar to what made people believe the things that Yogi Bhajan was telling them, which to me just seemed ridiculous. And I don't mean to talk about it in a negative way, you know, um, but it was just, it was, I was curious about what was happening inside of people's minds. And, And it's not black and white, you know, as I said, we all have our own experiences that we've lived through. And so we're approaching every single moment of our life with that background, with that knowing, with that inclination towards believing something that um, we are almost set up to believe. So I've spent a lot of time this year um, watching documentary films about cults and listening to podcasts, um, trying to understand what's happening within the mindset of the QAnon folks. And then when I found Rachel's podcast, I just really appreciated her style, as I've said probably 10 times already in the show. I appreciated her style, which helped to dig in to some of the science of the brain, in a sense. And this was helpful to me to understand what's happening when you feel confused about um, your place in a group. You know, when I was afraid to basically stand in my truth for fear of losing the friend, I didn't actually understand it at the time. I just felt conflicted. And now with the benefit of hindsight, I realized that it was just, I was petrified of losing her friendship. And so I was forcing myself to pretend to be somebody else that I wasn't in order to to not rock the boat. And, you know, obviously it came to a point where I just couldn't anymore. And, um, and this happens in so many situations, as Rachel mentions in her, her interview, that it can happen in any kind of relationship. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen in a family. Um, you know, I can see it happening with parents, right? This is very early programming where in order to be loved and basically have all your needs met as a child, you want to do things to make your parents love you. So this type of behavior is, we are born with it. Um, I shouldn't say that. We are set up for it um, upon birth and depending upon who you know, our, our, our formidable, um, 
years are spent with, you know, you can be set up in one way or the other. So it became really important for me to talk about this just to help people feel the strength to be able to stand in their own truth and to know that you may feel like you don't have anywhere else to turn, that whatever it is, the group that you're a part of may feel like you care so much about them and that they care so much about you. But as Rachel has said on plenty of her shows, if there is a condition of your friendship, of your connection, then that's not, that's not real caring. There is condition there. And so to begin to understand the way that I am influenced, not only by my own experiences, but by my desire to be liked by other people, really has opened up a new level of exploration for myself. You know, earlier this year, the 4th of July show was dedicated to the subject in a sense, where I was reading um, chapter segments from the book, You Are Now Less Dumb, which just goes into our own biases that we have. Um, Rachel talks about confirmation bias and how we basically seek out information that we want to know. And, you know, these are natural ways that the mind has been built in order to be efficient. So it's easier to just go with those biases. It takes a lot of work and effort to try to see them and to undo the hold that they have on on ourselves. So it's not easy work. Um, And I know that for people out there who may have lost somebody to uh, a control group, you know, this is not, I don't, I talk about QAnon in kind of a laughable way sometimes with friends and family, but it has really separated people. This whole political party system that we have is, is separating people. We are putting up walls between ourselves and, and we are losing our connection with people we at one point cared about and you know and on the other end you know people who we are sharing community with who we could be helping one another rather than than shutting one another out from our lives and again I'll give the caveat I know it's complicated Um, I know that there are some things that feel important to stand up for and there are no exceptions to be made and I'm not trying to tell anybody not to do that but my hope is that we can get out of the mind control and the influence that is so unconscious it is not we are not aware of it I promise you I am not aware of my own biases it is very difficult work to do and so I, I hope that if this is something that you're curious about, that you will check out Rachel's podcast. I said that I would share some of my favorite episodes. And one of them that she mentioned was the episode where she interviewed Yuval Laor, which is an older episode. It was August 14th of 2018. So you may not get to it for a while if you're just going in order from most present back in time. 
And to me, it was such a fascinating article um, interview. Fervor and awe with Dr. Yuval Laor from the Open Minds Foundation. Um, it's really amazing to understand, you know, so much of how our brain and our body is connected. Um, other episodes that I really loved, of course, from September 9th of 2020, she did an episode about the cultic ideas of QAnon. If anybody is curious about it, um, has somebody, a friend or a family member who they are having a hard time getting along with, it might be useful to you. The interviews with Mark Vicente, who from, if anybody watched the Nexvium documentary, he is just such a profound um representative of the of the power of um, owning up to you know the ex- your experience and and coming out of it and fighting um, great great story um, one of the other ones that I I really enjoyed was the consolidation of church and state with Tammy Willis from November 4th of this year and it, it really was you know, Tammy Willis seems to have had uh, a pretty interesting experience and is very is very wise in reflection about the the effects of mind control. And at the end of that episode, Rachel gives a very beautiful monologue about the state of politics in the world today and how it is, you know, this this polarization is so damaging. And, and how really politics can be, in a sense, being affiliated with a political group can be a form of mind control, depending upon how you're operating within it. So if those are of interest to you, um, truthfully, every single show I have listened to has been phenomenal. Um, I learned a little something about psychology, about the way the brain works. Um, it's told through the stories of the individuals who have been touched um, by their own experiences. And yeah, as you can see, I'm very passionate about this subject. Um, I think freedom is this thing that we all talk about having and wanting, yet we don't realize truthfully how far away we are from it sometimes. And so it feels a little bit like um, my life's journey to keep exploring it and to keep talking about it. And if you are listening all the way to this point and you do want to continue the conversation with me, please reach out. I'd like to do some shows in the new year where we do focus on this. Um, and if you are somebody who has an experience of this on your own, definitely reach out to Rachel, check out her podcast. Um, it will serve you tremendously. So we're just going to take a little pause here at the end of the show to do a little ha breathing. Preparing for next week's show. It, we're going to end the year in a very healing way. Um, I have guest. Belinda Farrell, who is just a lovely human being. She talks about the ha breath. We're just going to take three of them right now. Just had a heavy show. Take three ha breaths. Deep inhale through the nose. 
And you guessed it, ha through the mouth. Ha. Inhale. Ha. Inhale. Ha. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to Shauna for the music. And thanks to Rachel Bernstein for doing her work and again for being my guest. Until next week, friends, please do love yourself and uplift one another. Ciao.